Hello, everybody. Chef Patchwai and Mima Naimima. I'm Emily Washines, your co-host today for War Cry Podcast. We focus on data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. This is episode three. Please subscribe, like, share this episode. It really helps us out, helps us get the word out and let people know that we're podcasting. We're four indigenous women. This is uh, all hosted by indigenous uh, women. It's produced and edited by uh, an indigenous woman, Robin, um, who's also my co-host. So joining me today is Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Peebishy, Lucy Smartlowick. And again, I'm Emily Washings. Today's episode, we're focusing on a lot of different aspects of true crime, of Northwest Misting and Murdered that aren't really talked about in detail and discussion. Um, and by that, I mean, why is it hard for people to come forward um, regarding case information, regarding uh, other aspects of crimes that have taken place? Um, we've recently watched an article or and seen an article reported by KIMA. It's a local news station here. And the reporter Dax went out to White Swan and knocked on doors. And again, White Swan and where we're, we're uh, streaming from today is in South Central Washington, uh, homelands of the Yakima Nation. And he knocked on doors and nobody would go on camera. And he said the thing that he kept hearing is there was a fear of retribution. Um, he was eventually able to have one person uh, that was, uh, he did quote, uh, but they wouldn't give their last name. And so it got us really thinking and it really connects to these overall themes of why is it hard to come forward? Why is it hard to speak? And for me, uh, you know, I have a forthcoming case study on called War Cry. It's uh, going to be published by the Evergreen State College Native Cases. And I really opened up with this aspect of a flashback I got from school. So I grew up on the Nation Reservation. I went to Toppenish Middle School. I was going to give a history presentation to a classroom that I had actually been in before. And as I was walking by that classroom, I got a flashback to my own history class. Some of the aspects of that, I remember the painful aspects of having to be recording a history that was not fully accurate, of going home and having my family add additional elements of native history, of the native side, um, of things that we don't read about in books, the Yakima War. And, you know, I carried this with me and I thought, when we talk about reconciliation of our historical cases, when we talk about even solving and putting a name to some of these women that have not had their cases solved, what we're really talking about here is this aspect of bringing this information forward. And if we're bringing this information forward for the first time, if you as a listener have not heard the Yakima history, if you have not heard a Yakima talk about the Yakima War, if you have not ever been in a presentation or a history class where that's been discussed, this is all going to be new to you. And when we talk about this and when I speak about this, some of the primary comments that I get when I, I published on Missing and Murdered uh, Indigenous Women in the past is why is she bringing up these old things? Why is she bringing up things from so long ago? And the one aspect of it is and what we hear continuously is, why don't you just get over it? And the kind of rallying point and war cry that I give about that is, what is the it we are getting over? If you or they cannot describe to me the history and the it that we are getting over, if that is not understood, then that's where we need to begin. So I'm so pleased to have my co-host to kind of have this discussion point about it you know, these continual questions that we have. When we were talking uh, in a meeting before, I said, are we being gaslit? Is this a, a gaslighting of our native history? And I wasn't really sure um, what my co-hosts would think. So I want to turn to them for their thoughts. So gaslighting, according to Psychology Today, and I'm sure numerous other resources, is a tactic in which a person or entity in order to gain more power makes a victim question their reality. And it works much better than you think. Anyone is susceptible to gaslighting and it is a common technique of abusers, dictators, narcissists, and cult leaders. 
and it is done slowly so the victim doesn't realize how much they've been brainwashed. There is also another definition that I've recently come across which is called racial gaslighting and I want to bring that up as well. This article that's in um, the Metro UK identifies what is racial gaslighting and why is it damaging for people of color. So knowing what the definition of gaslighting is now, which is a phrase used to describe manipulative and psychologically abusive behavior. It can happen to friends, colleagues, and their family members too. It is exactly the same, only it makes the victims question their judgment on issues of racism. So it is a convenient tactic used to detail accusations of racism and shift the scrutiny onto the accuser, forcing them to question and reassess their own response to the racism rather than the racism itself. So a classic example of racial gaslighting is where a person of color describes a racist interaction, for example, like what you had given, like why don't we just get over it or why are we talking about these cases from 1800s and then, um, it's immediately questioned. And so examples of those questions are, are you sure that's what it's about? Was it definitely about skin color though? But I don't think that was about racism. Those are some of the responses that actually undermine the lived experience of racism of the person of color that has just described. So if anybody's interested, um, they can visit this article. We'll post it um, in our comments. Of what is racial gaslighting and why is it so damaging for people of color by Natalie Torres? And so when I first heard the term uh, gaslighting, I, I immediately just froze and said, well, what is gaslighting? I hadn't heard that term. And the young ladies are currently involved with this kind of work and want to just uh, honor them for the work that they're doing, but also educating me about gaslighting. There are other terms that we might use uh, as well. And when, when I learned more about it, uh, it reminded me of the term redlining, because I think that for me, the community of White Swan is redlined in many, many ways, um, you know, socially, economically, educationally. So uh, similar to my thoughts on the discussions that we're having around missing and murdered Indigenous women, it makes me think about um, in the historical trauma that we've addressed before. And uh, one major issue I think that really needs to be taken into consideration when we're talking about our, our women and our young girls as well. And it's not just the women and girls, but it's all of our families because we've all been impacted by historical trauma in one way or another. <clears throat> so as I think about this as well, uh, you know, we, we think about um, reconciliation, but when you think about reconciliation and resolution, you also have to take into consideration the fact that we've, uh, for me, I feel like over the years I've been like brainwashed in our systems that we have and indoctrinated in many, many ways. And with my history uh, growing up here in White Swan and also with my own personal experience with being a part of a um, you know, the Fort Simcoe boarding school with my immediate family members and also with the Yakima mission here, there's a form of uh, indoctrination and brainwashing. And then when you get into the public education system, the same thing happens over again with the public education and formal religion as well. And um, you know, currently I'm a member of our Totnish Creek Longhouse. However, when we discuss amongst ourselves, primarily the women, you know, those are some of the topics that we talk about is this indoctrination that has occurred over many, many years. <clears throat> and when we begin to think about that and, and the discussions that are going on around our uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, I think about, first of all, the the use of Western political frameworks in discussing uh, this topic or Western legal frameworks in talking about this. So we have to dissect and take apart what is impacting our communities. And so just thinking about the violence in our communities, I'm thinking about, well, what are these Western uh, educational frameworks that are out that, there that are impacting our community as well as these legal frameworks as well? How does it impact us? Are we continuing to use, for instance, in our own you know, in our own nation, those Western frameworks from the 
fear of Indian affairs? Are we still using those Western models of policies that impact and continue to dictate to us today how uh, resources are being used or how uh, programs must be designed? And so that's always a challenge, I believe, in, in those kinds of models when we look at not only the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but any federal entity or for that matter, state agencies as well. And these, these forces are all around us and they pack, impact us. And so it's no surprise that um, for me, that there's a major trust issue with these federal and state entities uh, that are around our communities, uh, formal religion as well. Uh, when the whole intent uh, was to uh, kill the man or you know save the man and kill the Indian uh, and that still is alive today and it's still a part of the narrative today uh, even in the media as well as research work that is done about Native people so it's I think an issue we have to continue to to take a look at so when it comes time to also just I'm thinking about reporting you know some of these situations that occur around missing and murdered Native women or, or assault in our communities, you know, your first thought is that, well, I'm not gonna be taken seriously because we're, you know, when we take a look at law enforcement or social services, they may wanna say, oh, well, it's just another Indian or they may wanna just take a look at the lifestyles of our people, uh, including ourselves, that we're, we're not gonna be taken seriously. And I think that's a major issue as well. And then we also have to look at um, inequality of, you know, of our, our statuses in the community, inequality in employment, inequality in treatment toward one another. So what is that inequality about? And in addition to that, then we have to take a look at inequality between men and women. Uh, I recognize that there are very specific roles between men and women, but what about equality? We don't talk about that you know that often so that's another issue as well um I just, and I just want to say real quickly Patsy if it's okay um hearing your talking about the inequality as well as hearing you say about the judgment of how women live um, is very important um, we hear on the Yakwa Nation about that and as you know your sister is still missing from the Yakwa Nation reservation um, I, I don't know how many people in this nation have ever heard from a sister of um, somebody that's missing. And even from the Yakima Nation, there hasn't been that many accounts. And to kind of almost stand and say, you know, this is something that we need to address and talk about um, is, is very important. And I think it'll actually be helpful for other family members and friends uh, to hear that validation of, you know, your life is valuable from you. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I really appreciate that. I just want to say that really quickly because... I, you know, I just appreciate those words. So, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no problem. And, and certainly, and I think about my sister and go back and think about that time, you know, where was the response to her missing? Um, and it still hasn't been there fully, I believe, in my conversations with law enforcement, with the various law enforcement uh, agencies, really lack of communication, first of all, and really no follow through and follow up and which continues to this day, not just in um, our family situation, but in other situations, as well as I talk to other women around the reservation about that lack of follow through. And so of course it's going to be a trust issue. And of course you're gonna think that, but they're not going to uh, take me seriously. And of course you have that you have that fear of criticism individuals families might have that fear of being criticized from you know these systems that are part of our community uh, I mean I live it every day um, I have people who talk to me about some of these issues and it feels like we you know the kind of support systems I think that are needed aren't necessarily in place nor do we have conversations about that with one another and so that's one of the reasons that, you know, war cry is important to us to be able to begin having these conversations, but it's also important for us to hear from you and also to hear from others about these issues. And I don't think White Swan's the only community. I mean, all we have to do is take a look across Indian country and this comes up over and over again with families and that, 
you know, in order to be taken seriously, they had to just go out and do things on their own, you know, to address this issue in our community. And it's so sad to uh, think about that when we have these uh, resources that are supposed to be in place and the fiscal resources that are in place to be able to provide the kind of support that is needed in our communities. And I think we're just in very uh, dire situation here. Thank you. Thank you, Patsy. And again, I think this is a, an issue we wanted to talk about as a team and bring the community in on. Uh, some other terms that came up as we were discussing this episode was, of course, gaslighting, which we uh, had defined, at least from what is being defined, denial, erasure, indoctrination, brainwashing, as Patsy had brought up. And just to share a similar story to Emily's, Emily and I actually went to the same school. When I was also in middle school, you know, I had a non-native teacher um, who was also a brown person, you know, when somebody had mentioned to them, we were talking about language, we were talking about history, which is also history class, you know, so it's like something about middle school and history classes. But, you know, another student who was non-native, who had been thinking a lot about the history that we were learning had asked the teacher, why aren't we learning Yakima? Like, why aren't we learning more about Yakimas? Why aren't we learning their language? Because we live on their land, which, you know, thinking about it now for a middle schooler to ask that is very like, like, wow, that's really awesome. And they were quickly shot down by their teacher, by our teacher saying, well, they're conquered people. You know, you know, when someone's conquered, we don't learn their history, you know, basically saying that they were part of and that they were quickly validating Western dominant society and just kind of like when we do speak out or even when advocates try to speak out for us you know, in a, a microcosm example of my middle school high, uh, history class, you know, when we speak out about our history, uh, it's quickly invalidated. When we speak up about our experiences or our oral history, again, quickly invalidated because it's, it wasn't written by Westerners. Um, it was, and so it's not reinforced by the Western dominant society. And again, you get that same thing that Emily talked about, which is like, get over it. You know, when is it over? You know, and later on in high school classes, you know, we would, I had one teacher who did try to teach about the Yakima Treaty in a like, one or two day kind of lesson. And it was, you know, non-native students asking, well, when is it all finished? Like, when are we done with the treaty? You know, like, when is it done? You know, not understanding that it's, you know, forever going to be there as long as the constitution is present. And, um, so when we get into those things, it definitely makes you just want to not fight about it, you know, and especially I think I was reading or no, I was listening to a, a, if you've all listened to the murder squad, you know, I listened to that <laughs> and their current episode was this woman talking about how as a woman, you just kind of want to, you don't want to rock the boat, you know, you just kind of want to leave it how it is. And because of how society reinforces to you that your opinion, your experience isn't as important and that you should just let it be. Because if you say something, you could put that man or you could put that other person's job at risk. You could put you know, their, their livelihood at risk. You could be putting your own livelihood at risk just because you're gonna say something because you're gonna say something that happened to you, you know, your own experience. But I can, we can talk, but again, that's how we brought up this show to begin with is that we want to get into various issues of why we aren't covering, you know, more cases at this moment and where we're going. We want to lay a good groundwork for our audiences because we know our audiences are going to be diversified. It's not going to be just tribal members. It's going to be people who may not know anything about, you know, MMIW newcomers to the issue. And then people who are just curious, we want to lay that groundwork as to why it's hard for families to come forward or individuals who may know something. And just to speak a little bit more of that, to take a little more time on this, I think Emily has suggested Billy Jensen's book, who's also on the Murder Squad. And yeah. 
just real quickly, I wanted to see if you would mention some of the updates on true crime, what's happening nationally, even, you know, we focus on Northwest missing and murdered, but Robin, um, before we started, had a really excellent summary, and she didn't mean for it to be a summary, she was just talking, yeah. and I thought, that sounds almost scripted, so I wonder if we can just um, turn to you, Robin, for some of those uh, announcements, what's happening, well, I guess California technically is um, Northwest. I don't know if there were any Native victims. I actually have something to add to that that is specifically Native, but I wonder if we can have you um, talk about a little bit about what's going on in the true crime um, community and cases um, overall, not just um, regarding Natives, but in the Northwest. Right. So uh, just bringing, bringing up again the murder squad, and um, I know that, you know, a lot of us on the team are true crime fans, but one of their writers, Billy Jensen, is really connected to and they often talk about like the golden state killer who they had been trying since the, the 70s and 80s to try to catch and they were using all kinds of different methods to do it so uh, in 2018 he was caught and he was definitely part of law enforcement which again just kind of reinforces that fear of retribution the fear and distrust but so yesterday, the Golden State Killer had actually a hearing where he had confessed to all murders that he was accused of. Um, and then uh, in Texas, they also had the remains of Vanessa Guillen that were found as she was the soldier who had actually did report that, you know, she had somebody harassing her, uh, sexually harassing her and just kind of essentially stalking her. And then she went missing. They did find her remains, but they also found the remains of another soldier who was there. And so both cases are under investigation. But again, just to speak again to where we are, uh, and the reason I bring up Billy Jensen is because he, he just wrote a book and I just finished it, but he really promotes the crowdsourcing, what is it, like it's a strategy to help solve crimes, like unknown homicides, crimes like that. And I kept thinking about it. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But it really, I don't think it would work on the reservation, you know, because he really encourages people to, you know, get into Facebook, start a page, isolate the area where this could have happened and send out messages or tweets or something that targets an audience. And I'm like, but that's definitely for an area of large space like in a big city where those who would come forward and say something don't really have a lot of fear of retribution because they, they could just fade back into the background of a large city, you know, uh, backspace. Whereas like here, you know, where Patsy's talking about living in White Swan, a lot of these things happened on the street from her. You know, we have a lot of things here. Um, and even in Toppenish, we're about 20 miles away. We could still identify anybody who posts a comment, anybody that we know. And like you said, it's just that fear is, it's, it's in a rural area. Yeah, exactly. And so like those kind of methods that are used that seem to be working in other areas, that's also what we kind of want to point out here is with the number of cases that come up, a lot of those methods would not work here, you know, despite yeah. It's like, oh, it's revolutionary. Yeah, for there, but not here. So, so there's a couple of notes on the Golden State Killer to make. And I think it relates to our overall question of why is it hard to come forward? So we pose this question to our listeners. Let us know in the comments. Why do you think it's hard to come forward in some of these cases? You know, we've heard from us. We want to hear from you. But when I was talking about this case with my husband, he had said, you know, that he had lived in that area when he was committing these crimes. And so, you know, we had Yakima's living in the Sacramento area when these crimes were being committed. And, you know, so I got to hear an interview immediately um, ask what was going on at that time? What was the feeling? What was, um, and they just said, you know, it was really crazy. Um, and they, you know, gave a lot of personal uh, anecdotes to that. Some of those don't involve them, but other crimes against other people that they knew. So I don't want to, release that just for sensitivity and I haven't checked in with them but just knowing that you know my husband lived in that area during that time there's another aspect of that case and the Golden State Killer which is he was caught so there's a lot of theories that came out about him number one of the theories uh, before he was caught was that he had some relation to law enforcement 
another aspect was, um, you know, that he, he had clusters of crimes. And so they were trying to figure out why they were clustered in certain areas and what were the patterns of that. And there are so many hundreds of people that were focused on this. Of course, Billy Jensen has an investigative journalist background. So that's his kind of take on the crime world. And Raman gave a really good summary about his overall work. But the way that he was caught is through a family, a distant family member had submitted their DNA to, to a site, a publicly listed site, to just kind of see who other relatives were out there. And the, it had enough genetic coding to be able to match, you know, with this individual. This individual, at the time that these murders were happening, DNA um, technology isn't where it is today. Um, so they didn't know how to trace all these things. Even people that were committing the crimes didn't necessarily know all of that information. So they were just kind of going for it. Um, he had horrific acts of violence towards people. But there was somewhere along the line where he buried a pattern. And so that, the reason why he, he buried his pattern, people thought, is because he had insight from law enforcement that were saying that they were tracking different forms and methods of, of, of people that commit crimes and that they usually have patterns that they do. Being so close to law enforcement, he knew what they were looking for. He worked with people that were looking for him um, that didn't know it. Uh, so there, there's a lot of things about that case. I mean, there's a lot of things about, you know, trust aspect um, amongst, you know, our people, amongst um, Northwest, I, you know, the case is ongoing, seeing the victims, watching it live, you know, it does take a toll. You see them, you know, we're in current pandemic right now, so you see them with their face mask with the little foam over it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so there, there's a lot of things about, um, about that aspect. And you know, but it, on the other side of it, and kind of this war crime moment of it is like their families get it. He's very old. He's, he's he is very old. I mean, he could have died before this was solved, but he didn't. And they, the families get some element of justice. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's not. Obviously, they don't have their family members. That's mm -hmm. never gonna feel okay. But the aspect that they have some element of justice. I, and the fact that it's came and we get to see it, it brings me hope for the cases that we have here. You know, this morning I had spent time talking with the state. I can't detail all the different cases. Another reason why it's hard to come forward and how, why it's hard to detail, detail some of these true crime cases is they're ongoing. There's a lot of sensitive detail and information that I can't release. Um, I am working on a late 1800s to 1900s case of missing and murdered uh, Yakima women. Uh, and, you know, there's ongoing elements and permitting and things like that that are associated with that. And one thing to mention along these lines, why are they still bringing up these things from 1800s? Why are they still bringing up these things from 1900s? We have two Yakima tribal members that are alive today that still that had their parents were alive in the 1800s meaning they had them when they were like 60. <laughs> so we're only one generation removed as Yakimas we are only one generation removed from the 1800s. That time frame and that period is so close to us still. We still remember things from that time period. We're still hurt about those things from that time period. We're still addressing time period. So when we talk about the point about historical trauma, I, I think it's definitely relevant. And I also turn to you guys for your thoughts on that. Just to add a little bit more into uh, the distrust also and the relevancy of the Golden State Killer and just murderers in the Northwest to just in general, serial murderers. You know, anytime you see a documentary about Ted Bundy or about the Green River Killer, a lot of the times they have roamed around in the Yakima area. And so... Anytime I watch a documentary about that, you know, I have my mom or my grandma saying, you know, I w you think that maybe he would have been around here? You know, those kinds of questions come up. But also in, in terms of the distrust and the methods that was used to actually catch the Golden State Killer, Nate, as, you know, Patsy pointed out, 
we have distrust of research, distrust of releasing any of our um, biology to institutions. So I don't know the number of people who actually contribute to genetic testing or can, can afford to uh, use 23andMe or Ancestry.com. You know, we have a lot of academics, native academics who actually talk against genetic testing in terms of contributing your DNA to 23andMe, Ancestry.com. Like even that kind of method would not be super relevant to anything that we have going on here as well, because it's like, well, we already distrust all these research, like I'm going to voluntarily give and pay for my DNA to be put into a system. So I think what we can do is also just take a look at some of the data about this topic that we're talking about. And I think we've shared some of that before, but I just want to highlight some of that again. When we think about this violence toward Native women in particular, you know, I've seen this data and I've also used it in testimony that I've provided, but I think it's important that we continue to repeat it because when you stop to think about it, this impacts many of our Native women and our young girls in I don't think we take this in serious enough and take it into account. So 84% of Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime and 56% uh, experience sexual assault in their lifetime. So if we're to think about that in our reservation community or here in the Northwest, that's pretty significant. And I shared previously in another podcast the impact this also had on our ancestors because it's our ancestors uh, our women ancestors who also shared about this type of experience that they had you know with violence and and sexual assault and so it makes you wonder well where did that come from where did all this violence come from why is it perpetuated on uh, particularly our women and the data goes on to say that, um, that women, particularly Native women, are likely to be raped or sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And that in some cases, uh, the homicide rate is 10 times that of, of mainstream society. That's pretty significant. And so that's one of the reasons that we're going back and taking a look at our history. I've been doing uh, research on on my own about this history, particularly around historical trauma. And, and we've all been doing you know, that research as well about this impact. So where did it come from? And so you know, we take a look at the treatment that we receive from state government or federal government. And I think we just have to remember that you know, when the colonizers came here, they came, I think, seeking, seeking something better than where they were. Uh, where they were also treated violently as well, but what they ended up doing was just violating, you know, the indigenous peoples on these lands here in North America, uh, USA as we know it today, South America, wherever there are indigenous peoples around the world. And so just, you know, continuing on with the onslaught of violence toward the people, and of course, um, murdering and the native people that were, you know, on this land and continue to be here. And so today uh, we can see that uh, with the social unrest in the country today, uh, well, not just in the United States, about around the world, and the mistreatment and violence toward indigenous people, brown people, black people, um, just that of dehumanizing us. And so that to me is a major issue, is that of dehumanizing us, because it makes me wonder what did our people learn by not only being dehumanized, but turning around and violating our, our own people, violating our own people, uh, dehumanizing us. And of course, when we take a look at the various institutions that are out there, you know, social institutions, educational institutions, that has continued to be perpetuated, for instance, in, in textbooks and how people are treated in these other institutions, so, such as social, social and health institutions, law enforcement as well. And so we just continue that kind of, you know, mistreatment, dehumanization of a people. And so that's something that it's going to require a lot of work and us to all be engaged in that kind of work of rewriting history like Emily is doing and also rewriting the policies, the laws 
that are out there taking a look at how we're training. Training is being conducted of our people and educating our people. And that includes our children, our babies that are in preschool, our babies that are in you know, elementary schools and throughout the K-12 system. And so we think about graduation at this time of year, we're in July now, and uh, we're, in, we're in a pandemic. And so we're really having to take a look at this very seriously and we're at an opportune time to be able to do this, to continue uh, the research and the case studies that are being done. And so as we continue along, would seriously like to hear from you about any of the research work that you may have done as well, because it can help us contribute to this dialogue as we continue to move forward. Thank you. A, a, a quick note on that, Patsy, is um, I really appreciate your point about dehumanization. Uh, Brene Brown talks about this aspect and the pattern of this regarding violence. You know, of course, she's a researcher, so she cites from a number of people. It's not just her own words and work, but, you know, you really have to pay attention to how are people talking about you? Mm -hmm. How do people classify and name you? Are they using a racial slur associated with that? You know, when we talk about schools and we talk about how our children are treated, you know, I have two elementary school age children. Um, my youngest is, you know, going to kindergarten next year. You know, it's definitely something that I think about because I want to know what they're being studied, what they're being told, right. and what, what's being withheld from them. Mm -hmm. And so this idea and this aspect that we have, we have this pattern and we have other sports teams that use racial slurs. I mean, I was in college and I had um, racial slurs used towards me by a teacher, um, you know, and I still want to go back and talk to that college and say, I want my grade change because before this happened, I had the highest grade in the class. And he said I was the highest, <laughs> I had the highest grade that I was the smartest but he still felt the need to use that term, that derogatory term that um, is used for native women um, or used by you know, Western society in a derogatory way towards native women while it was in a constitutional law class. And he kept driving the point in, it wasn't one class, it was multiple times where he had to write it down on the paper and bring it in and present it to me. You know, and I later was able to be on a board and bring about institutional change to help other uh, women regarding that, but I started thinking about this and I started thinking about this aspect of what our children are taught in schools, mm -hmm. how they're talked about, who we are, how other people view us, that comes out. So I appreciate that note um, and just wanted to make that point. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, it's an issue I faced when I was in state government as well. Um, the only native person in the state agency. And to have that type of experience uh, was very disheartening for me personally. But, you know, you were taught ways to deal with that. And of course, you just kind of, you just kind of Indian up and um, not respond to it, particularly when you're cornered by two white men uh, to say, you know, what should be done with the tribes and what they should be doing. It was very frightening. It was a very uh, small enclosed location. And so I always remember that as something that, you know, we face and we encounter, but we also have to teach our children how to be safe and protect themselves as well. I just, um, I appreciate both of your guys' thoughts and immediately what comes to mind for me when we talk about the dehumanization of us, um, it just leads me back to our first podcast, you know, where we talk about Dusky Maidens and how we were portrayed by, um, you know, reporters and uh, our society at that time. Um, I also want to talk about some of the statistics from the National Institute of Justice, um, bringing to Patsy's point of our historical trauma piece. What they've seen out of this 2016 report is that um, the percentage of victims experiencing violence by non-Indian perpetrators for American Indian women, we experience them at 97%. So basically that means 97% of us have experienced some form of violence by somebody that's non-Native. 
-hmm. our men, our Native men, have experienced 90% uh, of uh, violence by non-Indian So I think when we look at what's happening historically, violence towards American Indians has been accepted in our society, um, whether it's from the forced assimilation, like what Patsy had brought up, you know, kill the Indian, save the man mentality, all the way to Catholicism and where we're being referred to, you know, often frequently as, as savages and people who were, who could not be burdened with the responsibilities of being, a, you know, a civilized person. And when I was doing some of the research in our own area um, through the Yakima Nation, actually Yakima Valley Library Archives, I found it was very interesting how often we were referred to as people who were below, you know, intelligence and people who, you know, again, needed to learn how to live and survive here. And it's just very interesting because when it comes to the point that we're driving home now is the fact that, you know, again, we're, the violence against us is nothing new. And what's also happening is that, you know, we also know that this number is probably underreported because of the Western framework that has been placed upon us on our reservation. Um, and when we think about those things and how uh, we start to have our people fall in between the cracks, you know, like who can you really trust when our own tribal government is based on Western framework that doesn't work for us. You know, it didn't work for us back then. <laughs> it's not working for us now. And then one of the, you know, other things that comes to my mind is just how much some of us as people, because of the lack of education, because of the lack of exposure that we've had, um, you know, to our own treaty or even to our own customs and, you know, traditions and ways that, you know, have become lost, some of us buy into Western framework and continue to think that that is the way that can help us solve or resolve things in our community. So when I think about, you know, what Robin was talking about earlier with um, some of the things that were working in other communities where crimes were occurring, you know, one of the things that we had talked about as a team is why we weren't talking about specific cases. And what we brought up earlier was the fact that some of us live in these communities. And what you had mentioned, Emily, is, you know, your husband was living in California during the time of the Golden State Killer. You know, so I want to, you know, bring attention to our listeners is that we're probably related to either the person who has been victimized, or we're probably related or know of the person that was the perpetrator. And um, so when I think of this KIMA report, our KIMA report, you know, with the fear of, of retribution, that is very, very real in our community. And I just wonder, you know, like, what, not even what, but like when I think of gaslighting throughout our history, how consistently we've been told we're not valued, we're not important, we don't know how to live, we don't know you know, anything for that matter. You know, I think it just really goes back to like even trusting ourselves, our own voices, you know, and I think that's where, you know, our work, our war cry really does come in, in which, um, you know, is being able to talk about these things and to be able to say like, hey, this is, it's normal that you feel that way. But, you know, our community also, deserve some justice you know it's a it's a human right you know what's happening to us and you know we deserve that and we're finally coming out to say that we are important enough to deserve that so when i think about these these things overall you know it's it's complex there's so much intersectionality that happens um we're not even you know touching some of the surfaces of the issues you know, when we get into more marginalized groups like our LGBTQ community, but, you know, just in, in general, overall, I feel like, you know, it, it, it all intertwines. It all makes sense. It, you know, it's all leading us to have this conversation here. That's, I just wanted to throw that in there um, to see what else, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And so on that note, we do, we mentioned the KIME article again, and you know, there is recently another Facebook group that came up on the Akmer Nation Reservation to kind of address the crimes that are happening, and it's called We Fear Not. Um, the person that made our logo for War Cry also uh, has the logo that's for that Facebook group. They um, have a message, video message on there by uh, George Lee, who's a, a veteran, decorated veteran. Um, and you know somebody that his mother actually was killed in Seattle. She's in the report that was put out by the Urban Indian Health Institute a couple years ago. Uh, her case is unsolved, and you know he's really bringing this message forward. And so we're seeing response from the community. Um, at, at the same time, we're seeing silence. You know this aspect of having. Um, why is it hard to come forward? Some of the people that come forward, they're told. Why are you still talking about this? Why are you still bringing this up? Why don't you just be happy? Why don't you talk about your beadwork or your sewing and all these other positive aspects of what's going on in your life? And yes, those things are a part of us. Patsy talks and does so many different speaking. She sings for little swan girls that dance when we're not in social distancing. And those, part, those are a part of us. But as you heard from her earlier, this is something a family carries and they've continually had to carry it by themselves. And that's not okay. The fact that we don't see more of these stories, that we have these aspects and these missing pieces. Um, why do some families not come forward? I think because sometimes the families don't always have all of the information. They don't have the updates. They don't know, oh, there was that letter sent. Oh, what does this case mean that's coming up next week? I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. What's my role? How do I even go into a courtroom? Nobody's explaining these processes and these systems out to them while they're in a high state of, of grief, of mourning, of, of reliving that horrific moment that happened in their lives. You know, so I know we're talking really heavy. I, uh, you know, got a note that we have some youth that are listening to us as well. And um, we're going to final thoughts. I, you know, we talked a lot negatively about school. I have like three college degrees. <laughs> so I still believe in higher education. Um, I paid off one student loan this year. I still have two more to go. Uh, but, you know, I want to talk about a little, and I just want to turn to my co-host. What is something you're doing for self-care in this time? We have a pandemic going on. We have, um, seven homicides that has happened since this uh, pandemic's been going on on the reservation that involve Yakima tribal members or natives on the reservation here at Yakima. Um, one of the things that I've been doing um, for self-care or just really thinking good thoughts and prayers for our community is I have a new niece in Montana. She was born last week and we are making her baby board. I just have to put like the hood on um, so I just have maybe like 30 minutes left of sewing, which probably really means like an hour and a half because then I want something to drink. But anyway, when I make baby boards, we're taught and when we're so we have to think good thoughts. We have to think all of these good things. We have to think about the life that they're going to live, the protection. You know, our cradle boards have wild rows above the hoops as a meant to protect our people. And what we're bringing forward today, I hope is this element in these aspects of how we can increase that protection, why it makes this difficult for our community and our families to talk about Northwest missing and murdered here, um, especially with regards to natives. So I wanted to share that note. This is something that I'm doing. I appreciate her bringing um, this hope to our family, this new little life. And so I also want to kind of turn that note. I know we talked about a lot of intense stuff, but I, uh, want to see what you guys have been up to. What projects have you been working on aside from war cries? <laughs> well, I've been dealing with uh, my allergies. And so uh, that, you know, just affects you for a while. But just communicating uh, via social media, of course, and continuing to do the work. Um, uh, Rob and I talked earlier about the training that I've been involved with on Native Voices art projects for our middle school students in the state of Washington. So I continue to work with artists around the Northwest and continue to do the curriculum work uh, with our artists, uh, providing that training online uh, to our middle school students. Uh, typically, we have two academies during the school year, and because of the COVID, we've 
all had to learn more about uh, social distancing and also about recording. And at the same time, the podcast started. So I've also had to really come up to speed. This grandma really had to come up to speed on all of this real quickly. So working with these young ladies has been quite an experience for me, but I've worked with all of them previously in some form, uh, particularly in education. So I really appreciate this opportunity reconnecting with them again and being a part of, you know, this collective work, the shared work that not only are we doing, but I know that people in the community are doing as well. And so just please continue with the comments to us. If you see us in the community, please feel free to share with us about your story as well. So keep up the great work, everyone. Thanks, Patsy. Um, Emily, congratulations on your newest edition. That's exciting. I would have to say for self-care, I recently picked up two kittens. Their name is Boots and Goose and they're both wild. So um, that's been a huge adjustment, but it's also been really good for my self-care because um, they're like new additions to our family where, you know, we have to make all these accommodations, you know, around the cats and what it's like to take care of another living being inside your home <laughs> that doesn't know how to really talk back. Um, and my other way of self-care has really just been a lot of um, self-reflection and also kind of just checking out. Um, I play a lot of Animal Crossing right now, New Horizons on the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> and um, that's kind of in my form of self-care, but really it's, it's more or less um, the self-reflection of trying to like, how are my cats impacting you know, my life right now? Because they're really taking up space and they, they want to be here. And so how can I honor like all of us that are living in this space? Um, so I really appreciate you asking that question. Before I get into the positive things, um, so as what I also wanted to bring up during this episode also is to give a snapshot into how uh, we as a tribe are dealing uh, during COVID. So Emily had mentioned seven homicides going on the reservation uh, concerning um, Yakima members, either perpetrators or, or victims. Um, just the other day, a, a Yakima Nation Review staff had posted that they were looking into publishing in their next issue, July 15th, 40 plus obituaries. Um, and they were just asking for information for some of the individuals they didn't have information for. And that was, you know, really sad to see. Um, and the review comes out like every two weeks. I think it like kind of lingers a bit longer during this COVID time. But what that also means is that they, you know, whether on the reservation or not, uh, there had been 40 funerals that were cut short. And so as a tribal, as a tribe, and we have, as we've mentioned before, a lot of us have these really deep connected cultural protocols that we uh, try to abide by in our daily life, as well as in our ceremonies. And that also means that not only do they have to deal with trying to cope with losing this loved one, but try to cope with even losing the cultural aspect of what it, you know, how we would go through mourning that person. Uh, and we had talked about this before, like, in, especially in terms of those who are missing, how do they go through the mourning process? What does that look like? You know, it's very different and there's a lot of gray area. Um, and you know, along with the COVID deaths, we're losing a lot of elders. And so we're also losing that knowledge of how to deal with these things and, and that authority to tell us it's okay to waver off a little. It's okay to make um, concessions in this area or this area. But um, let's see, where was I going with that? So it just means that, you know, it just talks more to uh, our, our experience and our situation that's going on at the moment, in addition to being isolated, being, seeing the news, seeing uh, riots and protests happening around the nation and just in our backyard, you know. But again, with that, it, you have to be able to, as Lucy said, find, you know, do your soul searching, do your um, self-care. And again, I do appreciate that question too, Emily. And I was trying to think, I was like, what do I do for self-care? Uh, it seems to be multitasking, so <laughs> I'm just um, trying to keep track. 
I've been, I try to bead, so I, I bead quite a bit, but I haven't been able to do a whole lot of beading and a lot of it because I'm, I'm kind of busy with a lot of other projects, but uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing is video editing. So along with podcasts, uh, with this podcast, I edit some other projects like beading projects. So it's actually combining two. So I have some beading friends who are doing some how-to projects. And so I'm like editing their videos on how they do their beading. And we're trying to revolutionize how you do beading videos. Cause if you look on YouTube and you try to look at a beading video, it's like grainy and you can't really see what they're doing. Cause beads are such a small thing to work with. And it's like, people can't focus their, like, um, their camera, whatever working with and just like, what are they doing? <laughs> and also people talk a lot and we're like, just get to the beating part, you know? <laughs> so we, I've had some really great discussions with not only other beaters, people who have projects they want to do, but other podcasters. So I recently had a good conversation um, with another podcaster yesterday. We're just talking shop and that's just really exciting for me because it makes me excited for our podcast. Um, and then just on top of that is I think, on my down, my more my downtime, uh, staying connected with family. So we haven't had any like family Zoom sessions yet, but we have a big family text group and we just text baby pictures. We text pet pictures. Like we have a lot of pet pictures, like of my, my dog and my sister's cats and everything. Um, and then of course, like my daughter and all my cousins as babies. And so that's always fun to look at. And then we always laugh at like when somebody sends a text at like four in the morning, like, what are you doing? You know, like go to sleep. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what I try to do on my off time is um, not dwindle on things too long. And also again, um, leaning on our culture again, is what can we do? I feel fortunate we have my mom who's an elder here and she's a really good guide into letting us know like, well, this is what you can do. You can pray about this. You can um, talk to your creator about this or you can do this. And so that's that's what we tend to do. And you um, also listen to True, true Crime. <laughs> Since, well, I just started. Uh, so. Darkness with me by Billy Jensen. We're both uh, reading that. I That might seem an odd form of self-care, but I think watching and listening and hearing the process of somebody else so for some reason is helpful because I, I tend to overthink. I tend to wonder about process. Nobody tells me how to do some of these things about going and looking and searching for archaeological evidence of where these women are at and how to do volunteers. So sometimes just seeing other people's process for that, seeing what might work here. Right. Um, and then Michelle form of that. Uh, I also started Michelle McNamara's book as well. I'll be gone in the dark. Yeah. And then my, my sisters are all true crime as well. So they're, they're big fans. And so when I tell them I'm reading that, they get, they go, Ooh, they get really excited. <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to uh, the time for our podcast today. We obviously have so much to talk with you about uh, on these episodes, our war cries. We want to send out a war cry to, um, a few things. And this one requires a note. Patsy actually brought this up. And I think it really summarizes all the different people. Uh, Indian up, all the people that have been in those moments where they've been really upset. And they're just like, what is going on? I can't believe they called me that. I can't believe that's how they feel about this. I can't believe we're being ignored. I can't get this response. Um, you know, so everybody that's Indian up in those moments, we want to send out a war cry to you. You're probably going to have more moments in the future. So we want to send you support. Obviously, we still use the term Indian because it's a federal policy term. This is in the Constitution, in our treaty. It's a technical term we have to use. It relates specifically to our agreements with the United States government. Um, and as well, we want to send out a, a war cry to We Fear Not, this new community group on the Yak Nation Reservation. Uh, you know, if you haven't liked their page, please reach out to them, as well as ours. If you are a subscriber, we thank you very much. If you want to tune in to us, please subscribe, let people know. That really helps us out. Logo and additional support by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro. And our War Cry t-shirts by Nicole Pibashi. Music by Lee Seke Kwakiwa. Thank you very much, Chef Patchway. Good job.